We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me wanna. edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I'm your host, Bill season ticket holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And Chris, we're here talking about expectations. They're a dangerous thing. Expectations can be dangerous. We're here talking tonight about setting 2021 rookie class expectations in what I'd like to refer to as the pre-training camp edition. Okay. We're at the onset of uh, minicamp. Yep, Things. that starts soon. Things just got underway this week. And we're all at the same point, I think, as NFL fans when we think about where we are looking at our football teams. This is the po- point of the season where NFL fans everywhere feel pretty damn good. right? Nothing's gone, I mean, unless you live in Green Bay. <laughs> Nothing has gone catastrophically wrong yet. <laughs> You've got Super Bowl. You've got a Super Bowl champions fan base that's probably still reveling in the previous season's win. Because I mean, let's face it: if the Bills win the Super Bowl, I'm probably going to pull an, El- an Alexander Ovechkin. And you know, for those of you who don't know, captain of the Washington Capitals in the NHL, and just party straight on from the day that I get to the, the day that I get to see them lift that trophy till the day the po- the preseason started the following year. You remember that? Yeah. Ovi literally would sh- like the tradition, folks, is that you'd pass every every player on the team gets a day or a few days with the Stanley Cup. Yep. Ovechkin that summer would just randomly show up at people's houses when they were throwing like their cup parties, drunk in a tuxedo T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> he, with the Stanley Cup. He, the cup would be there, and they'd be like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm here to party." Oh, you got the cup? Let's party! And he'd show up with cases of booze. I mean. The the one player, I think the story went, he showed up with like almost $1,000 worth of Dom Perignon to some random player's house wearing flip-flops, shorts, and like a t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. 
Oh, you like that? Sleeves cut off? And the guy was That's just like, thing. "Well, hey, me and my family are here having dinner." He's like, "You're partying with the cop. We're here to party." And he drank for three months all summer long. Just celebrating the fact that his name was finally going on that cup, that he had finally won a championship. I can't tell you I would be any different. You've also got basement teams that just saw an influx of highly touted draft picks and free agent acquisitions because the teams that suck tend to be the ones with a lot of money, right? The Jets? Well, they don't have to pay anybody. The Jaguars. um, Who else? Who were some of the big spenders? The New England Patriots from last year? That roster sucked. And they had a lot of money to spend because they don't have anyone worth paying. Yeah. So you got to go out and find guys worth paying. They think they've done that. And it gives their fan bases various levels of hope from quiet confidence that 2021 will be a step in the right direction to these full-on delusions of grandeur that their teams are going to pull vault their way into... Com- I'm gonna, we're going to go from worst to first, baby. Woo! Hell yeah! Crack them open! Based on one single offseason. That's right. I'm looking at you, Jets fans. I'm looking at you. You are these people. And then you get teams like the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Browns, and the Bills. Teams whose players are experienced, whose coaching staffs are proven, and whose chemistry is already proven capable of taking them to postseason success. (laughs) They're, They're hoping... Chris, right? Aren't we? We're in that category. And you're hoping that the tweaks you've made or that what you've been able to change over the course of this offseason with less to work with than everybody else is enough to get you over the hump. Yeah. Or like at least I'd like to see us competitive against the Chiefs. And of all those teams, the Bills have the most continuity in terms of not just staff, but in terms of the roster among every one of them. I mean, head coach. Offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and GM. All of them returned. Yeah. Check that box. Didn't we have that last year where we were like... We were second, second in continuity in ESPN's continuity. And if they did it, if they ran it back this year, I'd argue the Bills should be number one because I don't know who else in the NFL had has that still from one offseason to the next the way we do. I mean, quarterback, check. Proven offensive line depth. Even if it is... Even if it's not all world depth, we're not talking about them being the uh, the chi- what the Chiefs did. Well, no, but like the like when you think about the early not early when you think about the Cowboys a few years ago when they got Zeke Elliott, one of the biggest things that helped Zeke Elliott's career is because they had laid a foundation of just first and second round draft picks constantly spent on the offensive line. So when you put this stud running back behind them, he was able to run wild because he had some of the best blockers in the NFL. Yeah, they were. He was running through giant holes. We're not there, but there's guys who started games last year in our uniform back on the roster all along the offensive line. Guys who could start for a lot of teams. So I'll check that box. Both starting linebackers and improved linebacker depth. Check. Only one starting DB from the last year missing, and Josh Norman. I'll take that. I mean, Kansas City, we talked we talked about it a week or two ago with uh, uh, Brandon Seclary of Game on Sports. Cornerback number two, three, four, and five for Kansas City have like 23 combined games of NFL experience that took place in 2020. I like to hear that. Good luck to you. Good luck to you with that. 
Fewer than two new faces at the wide receiver or tight end positions. Yeah, we did lose John Brown, replaced with Emmanuel Sanders. Who I'd argue is an upgrade. Yeah, he's older, right? He's older, but he's more efficient at beating. He's actually the most efficient wide receiver in the NFL last year at beating zone coverage, which is the thing teams constantly drop into when you have. Think about it. You can't man up Beasley and Diggs well. Nobody likes trying to do that because the route running is too precise. So teams, in order to try to slow down our passing attack, we saw the Jets do it in our second matchup. They got away from their man coverage, and Greg Williams said, fine, we'll play heavy zone the whole day. And it kept Josh Allen in check. Teams are going to try to do that until you, all of a sudden, you look at, hey, wait, the Bills starting three wide receivers are the most, like, they're all in the top ten for efficiency against zone coverage. That's how you beat that. (laughs) And no one is coming back off catastrophic or season-ending injury. Maybe Cody Ford. Yeah. But no one who plays a significant role or doesn't have significant depth behind them is coming back off an injury that you can't find a way around. I mean, simply put, we might be the team most well-positioned to continue the successes that we enjoyed last year. So with that in mind, after ensuring in free agency that our team was bringing back familiar faces and that our team our roster was stocked with talent, Bean went into the draft and swung for the fences, albeit without trading up or doing anything dramatic. I mean, he did something in 2021 that we talked about with Kentley Platty after the draft that he's yet, yet to do as a GM. He took a whole draft class of just freak athletes. He said, okay, are you athletic and can I mold you maybe? I'm playing with house money. My roster is already pretty flush. Let me go out here and make not just dart throws, but big dart throws. That's like, hey, if you're playing cricket at the bar, that's like saying, you know what? I could probably just sit here and maybe work the single 19s because that's comfortable. you know. And then maybe I'll, I'll shift over and I'll try to get that 18. Now nah, we're going to try to hit that bullseye right out of the... Why? Because if I miss, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you might hit one of the spots that you need. So, now that sounds great. But with such a wild card, it's fair to question what's reasonable to expect from this strategy, considering we only have a limited amount of experience with this whole drafting raw but elite athletically traded kind of thing. I don't, I, who was the last GM who you saw in, like... John Butler. You think about the GMs who have run our drafts for the last 20 years, and you watch the stuff they've come away with. They weren't just taking the best athlete. It was always about, well, whose character? Which one of these guys is a Boy Scout? Who helps old ladies across the street? Who's uh, a wrestler? E.J. E. Manuel has big hands, and he's a locker room guy. Is he a good quarterback? I don't know. But sure. <laughs> sure. He's... Uh, so we watched all of this stuff. We've never seen a guy who just says, listen... I don't know what to think about this guy other than he's a freak athlete, and I think I can teach him to play NFL football. And it's had, I mean, the results have been, I mean, Josh Allen, brutal first year, killed by liver in a million different ways. Most notably that he was so entertaining, I couldn't stop watching, even when my drunken sense of rage made me feel like I should. But he made a considerable impact over the course of that year because, Chris, with Tyrod Taylor on the roster, are we winning as many, do we win the Vikings game with Tyrod Taylor? Hmm. When he jumps Anthony Barr and then they go on to just steamroll the Vikings for three straight quarters. Probably not. Does Tyrod Taylor galvanize that team and get a win? I'm not going to lie. When you said 
Vikings game, my brain went to Kyle Orton to Sammy Watkins. <laughs> that's what that's what my brain did. I was like, oh, Vikings. Oh, yeah, Sammy Watkins. What is? Oh, wait. Well, there's something that happened after that. <laughs> after that, when he jumped over the linebacker. Yeah. No, I don't think Tyrod Taylor does any of those things. No. That Josh Allen can do. There, there were games, even losses, that Miami lost. It was a close one. You know, where the, the one where he just essentially treated uh, Kiko Alonso like he's like, like you would a toddler trying to stop you from running a football. You saw him bring a swagger to this team that they didn't have. The and dynamic that they didn't we have. We hadn't had that swagger in a long time. No. I mean, it was, it was the Jacksonville game. You don't win that football game with Tyrod Taylor at the helm. No, because Tyrod Taylor's not going to step in the pocket and make that throw no. to Robert Foster. And then he's gone on to develop into, luckily for us, into the guy that we hopefully think is the next guy we're going to be retiring a jersey number for. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You look at Tremaine Edmonds. Up and down first year, but he rounded into form. And that first year, you know, you could say what you want. You could see how raw he was. And there's a reason Roquan Smith got taken before him. Roquan Smith came out of college having a better understanding of what he was seeing. He could diagnose plays faster. He had it between the ears quicker than Tremaine Edmonds did. Even though he didn't have Tremaine Edmonds' freak size, speed, coverage abilities. He didn't have that, but he was more well-rounded. But you saw over the course of that first season, Edmonds slowly find his way, and then he's a back-to-back pro bowler. Right? That's got to be worth something. There's this slow maturation process that takes place whenever you take this approach with those types of players. Now, I've been told by many people, and I've read in many of the books people say I should read, (laughs) know me, in an effort to curb my possessive mentality, my I have to control everything, right? My control freak nature. That the idea of frustration is just an emotional response to other people not meeting the expectations that we have for them. But that those expectations are something that we're the only only one who can control that. That sounds like pretty sage wisdom, right? Yeah. Okay. It's true in life. And as much as I hate to admit it, it's absolutely true in sports. So with that in mind, I turn my eye to this class and I start to ask the question, knowing what their makeup is and the boomer bust nature of this class, or at least of what many of them bring to the table, 
you have to question what's fair of us to expect from these rookie players this season and try to set some reasonable expectation levels for yourself so you're not frustrated come week 10 of 2021 and you're calling uh, a young player who's got all the upside in the world but hasn't showed it yet a complete bust. The end of the world, you're yelling at Nate Geary at the top of your lungs about how it's, he's never going to be the answer. Um, you're falling off podiums and chipping your elbow permanently. Just, I'll, I'll wear that forever, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, and there's a lot of draft picks that you, that you miss on. Because you don't give them the time to develop. But that's my point. So let's all come together and talk about what's reasonable to expect from these guys, right? That seems like a fun exercise. It does. So we're going to start with the defensive ends because they're at the top of the draft. Greg Russo and Carlos Basham. Boogie and Groot. Those are pretty solid uh, nicknames for defensive ends, right? Yes, it is. Not, Not quite as good as the pterodactyl. And since this is a fancy conversation... I gotta pour myself a fancy beverage. Put a little whiskey on the rocks. Yeah, you're almost done with that. I know that birthday whiskey. Almost done with birthday whiskey. I gotta save a little taste just so I can take that neat. Ooh. So we start with the defensive end group: Greg Rousseau, Carlos Basham. Greg Rousseau at the top. He was our thirty. He was thirtieth pick in the draft. His best collegiate season: thirteen games, fifty-four tackles. Thirty-four of them were solo. Sixty-three percent. 19 and a half tackles for loss and 15 and a half sacks. The guy's got length, wingspan, short distance, straight line speed, which is important to note. He's got tools, but he's technically raw and posted some, I want to call them puzzlingly poor agility drill numbers in the run up to the 2021 draft. I mean, part of me thinks that's why he fell. When you think about it, when you think about a guy who's, what is he, 6'8? Something like that. He's tall. He's tall. He's a little, I don't want to call him thin. He just looks thinner because he's tall than a guy who weighs what he weighs. He's a massive human being with giant arms. And when you think about how that guy would have to move, his three-cone drill and all these shuttle things, he was terrible. Kentley Platty, go Google it. At MathBomb on Twitter, go find his relative athletic scorecard. You're going to see he posted some of the worst like three-cone drills out there. His agility metrics were bad. And that reminds me of like a DK Metcalf. But in the same way, does that make DK Metcalf a terrible football player? No. No, it just means you have to figure out how you want to use him. Now, against the run, he's got length and power that he uses to keep blockers off his body. And he uses a high motor and giant frame to work back to ball carriers in backside pursuit. His tackle for loss numbers alone, 19 and a half in a single season... That's crazy. That's crazy even for college. Like, considering you're going to be playing some podunk schools that you probably beat up on every now and again, 19 and a half tackles for loss is up there. And it just illustrates how disruptive he can be when engaging blockers. But also his athleticism to run down plays from behind. NFL Network's Daniel Jeremiah claims that in his analysis, Russo was unblockable by tight ends, both in the run and the pass. Now, at the NFL level, that might get a little tougher, but he, his size is just so overwhelming that most tight ends don't have the chops and the speed necessary to deal with both his size and his first step. And that's exactly what I think is the most important trait Rousseau brings to the table. I mean, when you look at his relative athletic scorecard, the one thing that stands out to you is that overall, his speed and agility metrics 
weren't super impressive. But his first step, his 10 yards, his 10 yards of that 40 happened. He's in like the high 90th percentile for for defensive ends who ran it this year. That illustrates that his get-off is so impressive and it's disruptive to interior defensive linemen who are slower, right? They're just not, their feet don't move that quickly. He's already moving past you as you're trying to get set and then react to what he's doing. And he's in the backfield now disrupting your play. That gives him this huge advantage. But when rushing off the edge, he didn't win a ton straight up against offensive tackles. But because of his relentless pursuit and high motor, just size, it kept him in place. When he, and the second he got a chance to disengage, he was athletic enough to track down quarterbacks who were trying to make off-schedule plays. He did get a, one of the knocks on him was that he got a lot of cleanup sacks. All right. We both. So, so you're listening to me talk at you about this stuff. As I lay this out, it still sounds like he has a lot of potential, doesn't it? Yeah, my whole thing is, you know, you just read off his best collegiate season was what that's nineteen. He opted out for twenty, and you're expecting him to build on what he did in nineteen to improve his draft stock. And having him opting out is why he fell. Because you you have this player that had just this great season, and they're like, all right, let's see if he can do it again or get close to those numbers. And because we're in a pandemic, he chooses to opt out. You know, understand. Why he did it, his motivation for opting out, and you just draft him based on potential is really what we're doing. It was a home run swing for sure. And the scary thing is that when you, if you're going by the relative athletic scores, he was actually one of the lower ranked players of this entire draft, which should tell you how freaky the rest of them are. And that brings me to Carlos Basham. Best collegiate season, 13 games, 57 tackles, only 26 of them solo, so 46%. 18 tackles for loss and 10 sacks. Now, he lacks in height, but he makes up for it in bulk and functional agility. That you is surprising for a guy who's as stocky as he is. He's got a great anchor against the run, and he wins using power more often than speed to get to the quarterback. But unlike Rousseau, seems to fare better against offensive tackles because I, I'd say it's probably because he has a lower center of gravity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like tall hockey players. Tall hockey players tend to a like not, Chara, yeah, tend not to be the fastest guys in the world, and they also tend to you can you if you're going body on body as you're going down the ice and you're jockeying for position, you can push a guy like that because he can't get lower than you. Yeah, it's the same thing in football. That does that make sense so far? Hundred percent. Okay. I, so when I look at their profiles and their situational overview. People question the Bills taking back-to-back defensive ends in this draft, especially the Creed Humphrey stands out there who were pissed to see him end up in a Kansas City uniform, which I understand because I was one of those people going, well, this is great. The Bills just landed Creed Humphrey, but it sucks that Carlos Bash. I was messaging people, DMing uh, Ryan Laso can vouch for it from Rock Sports Network, uh, Greg Thompson. Uh, I was just like, look, we got Creed Humphrey. It just sucks that Basham's going to end up in a Kansas City uniform because their defensive line is already gross and they didn't need any more help. And then we took Basham, and they took Humphrey. And I was like, well, shit. Well, shit, I don't know what to do about that. And then I passed out due to an acute COVID shot. Yeah, well, Because those you, side effects were kicking my ass. Well, if you watched Embedded, 
the Bills were getting trade offers for where they took Basham, but they kept deferring. Like, well, we we our guy is still on the board, so I guess they were looking at Basham the whole time. And I can understand why when people see that, there's some confusion over the approach. But the reality is, as we've discussed multiple times, our defensive line is that gross combination of old and expensive. And there was no future. So instead, they decided, hey, let's sink early draft capital into the future of this football team, considering we've already gone out and shored up most of our positions. The defensive end room specifically was old, expensive, and ultimately not getting the job done. A facelift was coming. Why not do it through the draft where these players are cost-controlled instead of going out to free agency and doing what the Jets did and spending what Carl Lawson, a player who, what, his career high is six and a half sacks. Yeah, he gets a ton of pressures. He's never proven that he can consistently generate sack numbers off of that. And they're paying him $17 million a year in a three-year deal. That's outrageous because you're paying him like he's already a star and he's done nothing to prove that. Yeah, well, when you're when you're paying out players, if you were to break it down by position, I would say quarterback one, offensive tackle two, defensive end three. For sure. So if you can build your edges through the draft, cost controlled for four to five years. One hundred percent. And they did it by taking players with fantastic upside in terms of raw athleticism and traits for a four three defense. But neither of these guys are walking into surefire starters' jobs. And there's some kinks to be ironed out in their games in order for each of them to reach what their eventual ceiling might be. And here's the rub as to why that's probably smart in terms of the way this team is set up and why that expenditure makes sense right now. Chris, our friends over at Hashtag Sports, now I didn't give you a chart today. No, I didn't give you a chart. Instead, what I did was I cribbed somebody else's research to help make my point because it's summertime and I'm lazy. Summertime and the living's easy. That's right. <laughs> Who wrote this? Is this your hand? Is this? Well, that's my crude, childish uh, Microsoft Paint handwriting. Um, they do offer text and paint. Yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> All right. I'm lazy. I want one-click functionality. Who did this, Paul? This is from Paul Wineski over at Hashtag Sports. In the run-up to this year's draft, he penned an interesting piece of research as it pertains to pass rushers in the draft. The numbers were not kind to pass rushers drafted outside of the early goings in the first round at the onset of their careers. So, to recap, essentially what Paul did was took five years of research, 2020 to 2016, and broke it down into picks 1 through 10, picks 11 through 20, picks 21 through 35, and picks 36 through 50. And he started looking at what the average production for players drafted in those different ranges might be. Now, when you look at, Chris, you're looking at this the same way I am, Basham and Rousseau. You've got Rousseau who falls into that bracket of picks 21 through 35, of which there were six players previously before this draft. Basham falls into the bottom category, 36 through 50. Seven players. Or actually, I think he qualifies in that range. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So he seems like he would he would be a fit there. The, the bottom tier, and you'd have to cut him some slack because he's not even drafted as highly as those guys. When you look at their overall production per player on average for their rookie season, picks 21 through 35, the player average was three and a half sacks, 16 solo tackles, and eight quarterback hits. That's for players who were drafted around the ballpark of where Rousseau was taken. 
For players drafted around where Basham was taken, the average was 1.8 sacks, 10 solo tackles, and 6 quarterback hits. And then when, so Paul, being the smart guy he is, took that and then broke it down another step and said, okay, I want to I try to account for players who might have missed time due to injury and only count it by games played. Let's create an average by how many games were played by all of them together and then look at what that average looks like. For players drafted where Rousseau was taken in that 21 to 35 range, they averaged .83 sacks over the course of their rookie seasons. And for picks 36 through 50, they averaged .73 sacks, three to four solo tackles, and fewer than three total quarterback hits. So his synopsis, which I'll let you go read for yourself, there'll be a link in the description of tonight's show. I urge you to go check out the entire write-up he did. But the numbers bear it out that when you don't invest in a defense, because Chris, by comparison, you look at these rookie numbers by guys taken in the top 10. Tell our listeners what you see there. When you look at guy, the average production, that that top bracket, picks one through 10 per player average. Seven sacks, 31 and three-quarters solo tackles, 16 and three-quarter quarterback hits. That's an NFL starter. So it stands to reason that if you're not taking an edge player or a defensive end in that top category, you're not getting a functional NFL player or NFL starter at their position, a high-level one. And when you take it back, as soon as you drop beyond that, Things get squirrely right out of the gate. It takes these guys a couple years to learn the game. Now, obviously, this isn't the end-all, be-all just based on numbers, but it does highlight a few things. Of the 27 defensive ends charted and edge players charted from 2016 to 2020, the drop-off in production was precipitous from one tier to the next. While fans would like to be optimistic, because every rookie in their developmental curve is different, some rookie quarterbacks come out and light the world on fire. Most of them come out and fall on their faces. Yeah, like or at least struggle a little bit with certain concepts of the game. Yeah, you look at Josh Allen versus like a Justin Herbert. Exactly. It's but it's noteworthy that recent history hasn't been kind to players taken where Basham and Russo were both drafted. And then when you take it and look look at it through a Bills lens, last season second round pick AJ Epinesa, he rounded into a nice player by the end of the season. That Well, not jumping off the stat sheet anybody was good enough to put Trent Murphy on the sidelines for the back half of the season. And yet there's a contingent of the fan base that was underwhelmed by his performance. Chris, is it fair to say that if we got in a time machine, we got in the old DeLorean, uh, got it up to 88 miles an hour and went back to week six, week seven of last football season, I'd still be pissing and moaning about the fact that A.J. Epinesa isn't doing enough for me. Yes, you do that every year. Okay. Doesn't matter the position or player. And that's why we're doing this exercise, both for me and the listeners. Because, like I said, we do this show as therapy for me. The rest of you just happen to enjoy listening to me drink and do it. (laughs) That's it. I love you people. But I'd say 80% of it's not. I'd say 70% of it's for me. 70% of it's for me, 30% for you. 28% for you, 2% for Chris. At this point, that's where it is. (laughs) But so people who feel that way, who were down on Epinesa's performance in his rookie year, you're going to really hate hearing that Epinesa, as a player that would have fallen just outside of that final group at pick 54, 
had rookie season numbers that fell right about in line with that bottom tier charted for players who didn't play a full season. One sack, 11 solo tackles, and four quarterback hits. In fact, his numbers were better than the average of guys taken around his draft position in previous years. So in that way, just based on historical data, not even taking into account the individual playing time opportunities, it might be a mistake to start projecting either one of those young players as having a sizable statistical impact as a rookie, unless you want to end up like me, drunk in your garage, yelling at everybody at a podium. Although there's probably a lot of people out there who don't mind doing that. Yeah. A lot of people like your rants. The other half of this is the stats and the, the starts and the playing time that they'd get. Now, in 2020, I was livid to see that A.J. Epinesa, who we drafted at the defensive end position, well after we took Greg Rousseau, but before we took Carlos Basham, was inactive for week one. I was livid. I was like, this is, is this your king? Is this your king? Is this the guy that you didn't take? I mean, it drove me crazy thinking that we passed up on better athletes at positions that I thought were better, bigger needs, like J.K. Dobbins at running back. I yeah. thought J.K. Dobbins at running back would have fit an immediate need by comparison to whatever the hell they thought A.J. Epinesa was going to be. And I was raging those first few weeks when I'd see that he was A.J. was either scratched or just not involved after the team spent the whole offseason flirting with this idea of cutting Trent Murphy. It's like, that guy's not good enough to be here, and yet you're going to keep him around, and your rookie's not playing? You have to uh, pull up and look at the chart that you made. might have been last year or two years ago. The rookie snap counts. This staff doesn't enjoy playing rookies if they don't have to. Well, that's why I love you, because you have no problem taking my own work. Because I drink, and I forget what I do, and I forget what I say. I live yeah. in the moment. That's why you it's like, all recorded. You like to go back and find these things and throw them in my face? Like, hey, stupid, remember when you said this? And yeah. I love it, because it is. It's like a bucket of cold water. You're like, well, I guess at that point I was more sober, and I wasn't as angry as I am right now. <laughs> but, so, when you think through that lens, and our rookies this year, I don't know that I'd care much if both were scratched. If both make the final 53 and they're scratched for the first game come week one, I don't know that I'd be that upset about it. Yeah, well, who's ahead of them on the depth chart? Exactly. Well, this is my point. We're not looking for these guys to contribute immediately. And this is where, again, setting expectations. You're looking at our depth chart. There's four effective defensive ends that have played in this system already on the roster. Epinesa, huge. the Huge. Jesus Christ. Chris, this whiskey. <laughs> Yeah. It's really whipping my ass. The pterodactyl and Mario Addison, who... And then F.A. Obata is there, just kind of lurking as this player who represents... I don't know. He's a more physical version of what the pterodactyl has been, with more proven pass rush upside than anybody else behind him on the roster. But it's one that requires a little bit of gamesmanship, a little bit of uh, game planning to try to manufacture. And so in that way, I have a hard time believing that both Rousseau and Basham would both actually be able to supplant everybody in front of them just on raw talent and technique level alone. And even if Addison is eventually released or traded for cap considerations, which, Chris, the team can make $2 million getting rid of Mario Addison. Via trade? Or they- Via however. If you caught him today, now that we're post-June 1st, $2 bucks in our pocket. Is this like a 
what we did with New England a couple years ago. We'll give you Russ Bodine. You give us a pick, and then you guys can cut him. <laughs> or maybe you wait until a team has an injury, and they're like, listen, we need a depth piece to provide three, five, three to five sacks a year. Well, you know what we have in exchange for a six-round pick? Here's Brandon Bean. He just folds up. He, he rolls up a manila folder and just goes, hey, buddy, you know what I got over here? I got a Mario Addison. Yeah, he's old. Yeah. Yeah, he's old. He's got some miles on him. No, he did. He didn't continue his, his trend of nine sack seasons. But you know what he has? He's got veteran savvy. Yeah, give me that seventh round pick. You know you want to. That's how that happens. I guarantee you. I bet you. I bet you. It's like uh, how Chad Johnson used to call his offensive coordinator. Oh yeah. In the middle of the night, just tell him I'm open. Brandon Bean would just <laughs> call teams as soon as he sees the defensive ends get injured. He's gonna start calling them at two a.m. Going, huh? Yeah, I can see. It. No, he just calls. He calls some GM and is like, "I got a D tackle." Hangs up, and then the the other GM is like, has to look at his phone and it's seven one six, and then he's got to Google what area code seven one six is, making him do a little bit more work. I got a D tackle sucker. Then he hangs up the phone. That's how he, that, that's how he negotiates. He's a he's a gangster. But so in that way. Even if that were to happen, it's still hard for me to believe that these guys are going to see a ton of snaps. Now, you, you just kind of hit on it. Knowing what we know about McDermott's proclivity for making rookies earn their playing time. What are you, which of these two guys, based on their skill sets, do you think has being the best one picked to start sooner? I'll look at it in, in, in through the lens of last year what Nate Geary said with Isaiah Hodgins, who was the early round pick. Versus Gabe Davis, who was the later pick. False. You got that backwards. Backwards? Gabe yep. Davis was the Gabe early Davis pick? Gabe Davis was the early round pick. Isaiah Hodgins. Hodgins. But if Isaiah Hodgins didn't hurt his shoulder, who knows what his camp might have been. Yeah, I'll look at it through through that lens because we got two players. I think it'll be Rousseau. You think Rousseau? Yeah. Because he got picked earlier? Okay. Here's what I'll say. Rousseau, his skill set has a higher ceiling, but a lower floor than what F.A. Obata currently brings to the table. What, you want to talk about being a giant man running around in the open field? F.A. Obata is a giant, okay? And he's proven that his pass rush on the interior of the offensive line, it's disruptive. The Carolina defensive coordinator last year used it to his advantage again and again and again. That's what Rousseau represents as a rookie. He's going to rush from the interior. He's going to learn how to take on offensive tackles. And he's going to try to figure out how to be an every down 4-3 defensive end. He has to learn technique in terms of run defense, how to hone his pass rush moves against offensive tackles. He has a lot to learn. And in that way, there's already a guy on the roster who does that job. Meanwhile, Basham. Not the physical freak Rousseau is, but comes in with a higher ceiling as a player on the edge in both the run and the pass. And then, never mind the fact that he's big enough that you can move him inside, and with his ridiculous athleticism and his agility, I'm sorry, you just throw that in. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing who is his direct competition on the roster. I don't know that there's one player who already does the job that Carlos Basham comes out of college being capable of, capable of doing. I mean, I would have said Quentin Jefferson before the before the Bills cut him. And when I look at the roster now, the pterodactyl is purely an outside player based on historical usage. 
Epinesa, after losing weight, you like when he was two eighty, you two seventy nine, you could talk about putting him over center or over guard. You can't talk about that now. He's too small. He's dropping into coverage, scaring the hell out of Philip Rivers <laughs> in a playoff game. So he's pretty much an outside presence now. Obata is this big body guy that can rotate and provide interior pressure. But if you're trying to put together like the Giants used to, the NASCAR package, you bring two pass rushers right into the middle. You bring defensive ends up the gut. Yeah. McDermott seems to be wanting to build that. I think Obata would be just based on his size versus the agility that Basham has. They almost have complementary skill sets rather than contrasting ones. Kind of like you and me. Yeah. Yeah. We're contrasting for sure. One of us is more athletic than the other. Uh, One of us doesn't put a pound of product in his hair every single time he leaves the house. Got to look good. One of us can talk to people in a social setting. I do not do that. No, you don't. One of us is just straight up awesome, and one of us is this fucking weird mud of a human being that I... But I love you. Yeah, somebody with long arms. I don't have a drink. Because <laughs> I, I got to go to work later. I'd still toast you. I'd still toast you to this. But so with that said, Chris, would you call me crazy if I can envision a world where Basham is part of our starting rotation earlier than Roussel? Yeah, I believe it. Okay. So given that, neither of them is a shoe-in to play a full 16-game slate. And knowing what history says about edge players who are taken in similar draft proximity, and now here's where we marry these concepts together... I think it would be a mistake to say that either of these guys, quote-unquote, should have stats that blow A.J. Epinesa's rookie statistics out of the water. I mean, he only played 31% of all the snaps he was active for, and they're probably going to find themselves in similar situations. I mean, even Daryl Johnson. Daryl Johnson, out of necessity, played 30% of all snaps his rookie season, and then down the stretch of the season, played five. 5% 5% as they figured out that he's just not cut out for this as an every down starter. So with that in mind, I feel like that's the ceiling that you can expect for these young rookies on a team that's built the way ours is. And because I think Russo will have a harder time finding work out of the gate, I think it would be a mistake to say that just because he was drafted as the future up, just based on his future upside, he should have a bigger immediate impact. <sighs> At the same time, I think they're more versatile than Epinesa. And entering the NFL and considering that the Bills seem to be dedicating themselves to having more options and the ability to get more exotic in terms of how they create pressure than they were last season, I'd expect to see pass rush numbers get a slight bump over maybe some what some other teams would get out of their rookies. So, Chris, I'm going to give you my early estimates. I want you to take this down because I'll drink a Seagram's on it. Or at least we'll revisit this at the end of camp. All right. But I'm willing to put a Seagram's on it at that time when I see how the rotations break out. I say that Carlos Basham, he plays less than 30% of all defensive snaps. He finishes with about two and a half sacks, 23 tackles, and six quarterback hits. And for Rousseau, less than 25% of all defensive snaps, still finishes with two and a half sacks, about 18 tackles, and five quarterback hits. Your thoughts on how you would react if that was the season you got from those two players in 2021? I'd be fine with it because, like I said, barring injury, there's better, more experienced players ahead of them. So, Do you think either one of them is a danger to see the practice squad? I mean, I don't. 
No, they'll be on the 53 for sure. You have to, right? They're yeah. your top two picks in the draft. You're not going to leave that up to chance. No, I don't ever see foresee that So that whose happening. jobs do you think are most in jeopardy if that's the case? Well, Ad- Addis, everybody's been talking about Addison being a potential cutter trade yeah. when the time is right, but... I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't be mad at these stats. I there I, I just feel like Basham and Russo are going to see the field in specific situations. How how pissed will you be if the drafting of these two results in the release of the pterodactyl? I'll be fine with that guy. It was like a sixth round pick or a seventh round pick, right? He was Fuck huge, off. though. His yeah. wingspan was epic. It made me feel at home knowing that somebody else has my problems of just giant arms. Yeah, he was a seventh, sixth, seventh round pick. Fuck that guy if he can't figure it out. <laughs> Jesus. I love how cold blooded you get. We've loved that guy. And I want to imagine that he loved us in return. And yet here you are, just dunking all over him. Thank wow. Do your 111th, and then you'll stay around. Now, obviously, if the players ahead of them, like Addison, Daryl Johnson, and these other guys fail to impress, these this whole conversation changes. Over the course of camp, those guys could... The, the cream always rises to the top. Yeah. Especially amongst a team that actively tries to suppress that, like the Buffalo Bills with Sean McDermott. Right? Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to revisit this conversation post-training camp and see how this picture that we have of where they all slot in might change... And where they are in the rotation, where they're getting reps, where they're playing, or at least where the team envisions them being, because I have a hard time seeing them being expected as day one starters. It's going to be very interesting to see that play out. Now, on the back side of this conversation is the offensive line trio. On the offensive side of the trenches, the Bills took not one or two, but three ultra-athletic offensive linemen prospects that all have... Some of the best athletic scores of any Bills draft picks ever. Chris, ever. Spencer Brown set the mark for offensive tackles for relative athletic score. Didn't he get a 10? 10. Perfect 10. And it's the first one drafted by the Bills in God knows how long. Decades. And because offensive linemen don't accumulate traditional statistics, trying to set expectations there might be somewhat difficult. But the hell with it. We're going to give it a try. Why? Because who's going to shoot us if we're wrong? <laughs> the Bills took three offensive linemen in this draft. Spencer Brown, Tommy Doyle, both offensive tackles, and Jack Anderson at offensive guard. Now, when you look at those players, there's enough to like about them as having NFL upside. Brown is at his best blocking on the move, something no one could do last year in 2020. He gets in and out of his, his past pro reps, something that some rookies enter the NFL really needing time to develop. He already does it well. We saw, you, know, you saw that at the Senior Bowl. He's a heady pass protector. He's a smart guy with great feet, good feel for extra rushers and delayed blitzers. It's like he already has an eye as he's dealing with his man to the second level, which is something that you can't teach. Some guys just have awareness and some don't. Doyle is bigger than Brown. But he's got a big lower body, anchor, and his blocking technique, that's going to need a little work. But what I'll say is he's nasty. He plays within a sandpaper that he could smooth at all the rough spots in your personality, Chris. (laughs) He might be the most agile, if not the most polished, of the three offensive linemen we took, which is notable considering he's bigger than Spencer Brown at 320 pounds and 6'10". 
320. They said that his his short shuttle would have made him one of like I, I think what did uh, Kentley Platty say when we had him on post draft? That shuttle time for Tommy Doyle would have put him into like the low forties for cornerback times. How horrifying is it that a man that size can move that quickly? I'd be afraid. What would you do in a What would you do in an alley if you were confronted with a dude that fast? Well, considering I'm an athlete and I have a lot of agility. And you also have a dad bod. Yeah. Dad bods is also means a rec league superstar. That's <laughs> what that means. Is that is that the equation? Yeah. I would use my agility and I would go around him. You think that you're... Oh, my God. That's that's rich. You think you're more agile than a man who has like a four-second three... You get out of here. You would probably just fucking turtle. Oh, yeah, no, I would just lay down. There's no fighting that fight. I have no shame in that. That dude is so fast and so big. Now, I'll just turtle up. I had that happen once. Have you heard the story? No. No, I got beat up outside of a Denny's. Beat up outside of a Denny's. There was a fight going on with a couple of my friends, and I came out and tried to break it up. And I got the guy that I just referred to as that Zeus is what we all just kind of refer to him when we're telling the story. He avalanched on top of me in the bushes outside of a Denny's, and there was nothing I could do. I just literally laid on my back and kicked upwards and covered my face and just kept yelling, no. <laughs> no! And I was like, don't let him hit you in the same spot twice. That's it. And just try to survive. You know, uh, the, the, old, the good old-fashioned Mike Gundy. Compete! You gotta compete! I was competing down there for my life. And then finally the cops showed up and pulled him off me, and I hugged one of the officers, and he was just confused. <laughs> Why are you touching me? Oh, God. In any event, Tommy Doyle, massive human being, kind of a savage, not as polished as Spencer Brown. And then Anderson, who's just physical, but he's been competitive at every level of football that he's played at, but he's nothing special. And now, Chris, considering that these guys don't typically get stats, the only thing we can really use is a measuring stick for this would be playing time, right? Yeah. How many snaps do you see? That's the only thing we can hold them to. When you look back at McDermott's handling of offensive linemen, this team on the whole has stayed away from trusting rookies, like they have in most other facets of the team, unless they absolutely have to. Deion Dawkins started 11 games as a rookie in 2017, but that was only because Cordy Glenn, like, high ankle sprain in training camp, which you and I were actually at training camp for. Do you remember that day? Absolutely not. What? That was the day we met Ryan Lacell and Icy Vic. That day? That Well, that's probably why I don't remember what happened at camp. I remember what happened after camp where you were <laughs> telling me that you were going to end up fighting Ryan Lacell. I think everybody has that reaction to Ryan Lacell before they actually meet him. It's great. Yeah. Because him on social media, yeah, you want to put him in a headlock. Yeah, he is a dick. <laughs> you want to put a... him in a headlock. And then you meet him in real life and you realize he's just this generous guy. He's outgoing. He's not afraid to have an opinion. That's the thing. He's a big guy who's sure of himself and he's not afraid to have an opinion. And he's not afraid to tell you that he thinks you're stupid. And in that way, we're kind of kindred spirits. Yeah. And after meeting him, I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Oh, the comes across how I also come across on social media. <laughs> I get it. I don't have to fight him now. 
But so we were there that day, and I just remember that sick feeling in my stomach, knowing that Cordy Glenn, like, you saw the guys running around the sideline going, high ankle sprain, high ankle sprain for Cordy Glenn. You're like, oh, no, there's our season. Yeah. Our 2017 season up in smoke because. That, that's like, that could take four to six weeks to for you to get better, but then it still lingers it after that. It still lingers. And so he saw a lot of playing time because they needed him. And for as abysmal, as abysmal as the offensive line was in 2018, back when it was the 31st most expensive offensive line in football, because the team was cutting cap space. Let's let's call a spade a spade. Yeah. They were looking to get rid of all the money they could, so they brought in Russ Bodine to start at center. Yeah, that guy. And they traded him to New and England. they immediately got rid of him. They, they said, listen, guys, we're going to bring in a bunch of shills Josh Allen, he won't see our pri- our prized rookie quarterback won't see the field, so it won't matter. We'll let Nathan Peterman. I almost wonder, Chris. There's a part of me that wonders if the design wasn't to punish Nathan Peterman for that game in uh, Los Angeles or San Diego. Actually, I think they still were. Yeah. No, they were the LA Chargers at that point in 2017. Yes. Maybe it- they're playing at the Coliseum. It doesn't matter. They don't have good fans. So they threw in. They threw in Nathan Peterman over Tyrod Taylor. That blew up in everybody's face. And Sean McDermott had to go to the locker room and be like, look, guys, I screwed up. He owned it. They made the playoffs. Everything was fine. I felt like them opting to put Nathan Peterman out there as the starter week one against the Ravens that year in 2018 behind a terrible offensive line. I was like, this has to be some sort of like, hey, remember when you screwed me? Screw you. Go out there. Get your head kicked in. We're not risking our quarterback. And then by halftime, they were like, okay, we got to do something because he's actually punch drunk. Like, he can't. He's not cut out for the NFL, this Nathan Peter. Yeah. Although, if you ask John Gruden, John Gruden thinks he's the cat's pajamas, which tells you everything you need to know about that team. But I digress. From where we were in 2018 to now, I mean, look at this. Wyatt Teller. Okay. I'd, love to, have, I'd was, love to have that one back. On a team that was trying to be cheap and bad, Wyatt Teller was inactive until week nine. He didn't play a single game until week nine and didn't start until week 10. And in 2019, the team traded up for then-offensive tackle Cody Ford. They, they had to rotate him at right tackle all season with uh, journeyman Ty Inseki, and he never found his footing. He was often when it, like they would put Ford out there and let him play for so long until he was so disruptive to the game plan that they couldn't tolerate it anymore. Then they'd put in Inseki and the whole thing would just come together. And then the offense would start to hum. <laughs> he finished with a near perfect split of reps compared to Inseki and the rest is history. Now he's a now he's a freaking guard who's fighting for his career. Each of those guys saw time their rookie years, but you could argue it was because there was nobody else suited to do the job besides them. Specifically Dawkins and Ford. I was quick thought. I was going to ask you this about Ford. I don't know. You might want to pull up his Cody Ford's RAS score if yep. you can, because this might play a factor in this. So based on Ford getting drafted, you know, yeah, yes, Bruce Nolan thought he was a guard over a tackle. We thought Bill's Brass thought he was a tackle over a guard. Yikes. So I'm going to ask you his, like, the athleticism scores of Cody Ford's RAS score and 
them drafting Ford, seeing what they have out of Ford, and then going, all right, in the draft, we got to go a completely, completely different area with our next set of tackles that we're in they the draft. They couldn't be more different. Right now, the only thing that Cody Ford, if you're looking at relative athletic scores, scored well on was weight. That he was heavy. He wasn't even that tall. He's six foot three, which if you're talking about tackles, that's not very big. So they saw what they got out of Cody Ford. And- but, but, but his bench press was only 19 reps, which put him at a 1.74 out of 10 compared to his corollaries. His shuttle was a 3.6, and his three-cone drill was a 1.76 out of 10. So my only question is, being in company, draft Ford, tackle, let's move you to guard. Okay, let's. we got to change up what we do when it comes to drafting tackles and guards. That's, what That's like, fair. Is, is that a thing? You know what? Look at you developing football thoughts. I love this shit. I'm now, just saying, is that, a, is that a thing? Now, when you look at the roster today, this team has done a lot of work this offseason fleshing out its offensive line with experienced talent, especially in the interior with veterans uh, what, Jordan DeVay, Jamil Douglas, Forrest Lamp. All of them slotting in, fighting for roster spots behind John Feliciano and Cody Ford. Yet the offensive tackles were legitimately one injury away from seeing Bobby Hart. Now, I know Bills fans feel a certain way about Bobby Hart. I'm less concerned about him thinking that the earth is flat and that dinosaurs are fake as I am about the fact that he sucks at football. He's awful. Go ahead and look up Bobby Hart. I feel like if you were to go Google Bobby Hart highlights, your computer will burst into flames. It'll just explode right in front of you. <laughs> like this. Yeah, I mean, that's what we get for taking people on the line from Cincinnati. Bodine. <laughs> yeah. Now Bodine. Bobby Hart. Now Bobby Hart. He's about as likely to make people forget about Darrell Williams as a football player as Mark Smith is to convincing me that Little Caesars is just as good as Lenovo which is a real conversation we've had. In ter- he says in terms of value, Little Caesars and Lenovo, eh, he could go either way. I'm not that high on Lenovo's pizza. Yeah, but Little Caesars? I would That's drunk food. I would eat it over Little Caesars for sure. You but- have to have over zero blood alcohol content in order to enjoy Little Caesars. That's the rule. I, I didn't write it. Though. That's just the law, Chris. <laughs> and so with that, for rookies, the reality is there that there's a learning curve, and not all scheme fits are created equal. I mean, if it wasn't, Wyatt Teller would still be here. He'd still be here as our Pro Bowl right guard, not in Cleveland, and we wouldn't be talking about it. So in this way, I think that it would be a stretch to assume that as packed as our offensive guard room, that Jack Anderson has any hope of making this roster, right? There's no chance that a late flyer goes anywhere but the practice squad. Now when you've got former first and second round, third round draft picks ahead of him in the packing order. Yeah. There's no way, there's just no way it happens. So his upside is probably a practice squad candidate that you hope develops into a cheap backup option for you somewhere in 2022. That's it. Now at offensive tackle, Doyle and Brown are interesting. Doyle would become the largest member of the offensive line room and arguably the most athletic on the entire offensive line. While Brown's chops are pretty polished, and his athletic upside gives us someone who can pull across the formation and key our outside runs, something that the Bills were atrocious at in 2020. (sighs) 
So with it in mind, I feel like the team should and probably will give them every opportunity to compete with not just Bobby Hart and Ryan Bates, the other guys in the offensive tackle depth chart. I could also see them giving Ike Bakker a run for his money with this eye towards potentially getting one of them. Maybe Doyle, given the fact that he plays with a little more of a mean streak and is bigger than Spencer Brown, some reps at offensive guard. Maybe you're hoping that this our backup guard option gets settled pretty quickly and we don't actually need either one of these guys. I think that it's a win for this group if you can see Jack Doyle and uh, or Jack Doyle, Jesus Christ. Tommy Doyle. Tommy Doyle, Spencer Brown on the final 53, even if they don't both get activated every game and pushing for those backup jobs while participating on special teams. I mean, Spencer Brown is a massive dude. He's super athletic. But Darrell Williams? Darrell Williams has already gone toe-to-toe with T.J. Watt and held him at bay for an entire football game. You know who can't say that? Spencer Brown. Yeah, and what? Uh... I've seen the talk amongst fans who are like, well, we if he takes the job in camp, we could cut him and... Bu-. What are you talking about? Yeah, we just signed Darrell Williams, right? You just signed him to an extension. And Three also, years. he's proven he can protect your quarterback. In a year where you expect to win the Super Bowl, do you really think that that's going to happen? Yeah, who's what three year deal? Three year deal. Three year. We can get out in a year. So there you go. So they're the future. Yeah, and so the upside for this group, if you're trying to be optimistic, should be that they're backups. Correct. Yes. Okay. Now you go on to the last, the back half of the draft, and this is where it gets fun. Wild Goose, Stevenson, and Hamlin. They round up the draft class, and they're interesting because this is where everybody's just throwing darts. You're just like, well, that guy looks, he has one or two traits I like, so I'm taking that guy. I'm taking this guy. The most interesting of the bunch is probably Marquez Stevenson because I asked about him specifically during our show with Mark Schofield, uh, Mark Schofield and he had this to say about his skill set. So with that in mind, when you hear those things, and you take a look at what we already have on the roster. Marquez Stevenson to me, I mean, Richard Wild Goose, I like him just on the merits that if and when he actually gets to play and he makes a tackle, I can get a callback to Super Troopers where the guy's pretending he's streaking outside the police station and Ursula comes outside with the shotgun. Yeah. And has the voice changer, and she goes, bend over and touch your toes. I'm going to show you where the wild goose goes. And that guy goes, oh, God, I I have a family. And she she laughs. But I I remember, I have it, Chris, it's on Twitter right now. If you went on and looked at our unsent tweets, I drunkenly penned a tweet that was like, I need us to draft this guy, Richard Wild Goose, just so whenever he makes a tackle, I can yell out, he showed that guy where the wild goose goes. That's what an idiot I am. I don't know what he is. He's fast. He can fly. Can we teach him to cover? If anybody could, it's probably Sean McDermott. Damar Hamlin. Is he... I mean, you think about the long list of safeties we've brought in late in drafts who go on to be bit pieces, special teams players. But guys they drafted higher than that still haven't made an impact for this defense because our current incumbents keep them from seeing the field. Is Hamlin one injury away from seeing the field? No. Who's no, Saran Neal would be the next up. 
And I okay. think beyond that, we've got some other guys I think they'd rotate in there. I just don't. So Hamlin, to me, is just kind of this maybe practice squad. I don't I don't expect anything from him. Who's the, who do we just who do we lose to the Lions? That went to the Lions. That was like our oh, he was the hero of Week Three. I can't think of his name. He was safety, right? Played in the box. No, I could Google it. Hang on. So it's Dean Marlowe, according to the old Google machine. Yeah, is Hamlin the new the new Dean Marlowe? Maybe. I mean, they went as far as they could with Marlowe, but Marlowe balled out last season. <laughs> for a backup who never saw the field. Well, yeah, now he's in Detroit he chewing, knee, chewing kneecaps and wearing racing helmets. He wanted an opportunity, and he got it. The most interesting out of this bunch is probably Marquez Stevenson, right? That's what I come back to because we've talked about all this. You think about what they are. when you, Marquez Stevenson, to me, represents a guy who could threaten to make the roster. As a kick returner, punt returner? As a specialist, but then you have to question where. Now, here's what I love. The common Bills trope or Bills fan trope that I've seen is that, well, we could cut Isaiah McKenzie and just, this guy will just pick up the slack where he left off. First of all, I don't think you guys understand how hard it is to be a returner in the NFL. If that was the case and it was super easy, every failed wide receiver would just go do that. Kind of the way like every failed soccer player just comes over here and becomes a punter. <laughs> Isn't it like I think of like Gramatica, punters and kickers. Like I think of all the guys who came from soccer who never played collegiate football, who just yeah, go on to be good specialists. Seattle's, Seattle's punter, I believe, is is uh, from Australia. Probably. Dick, Dickinson, right? That's, Mike, that Michael Dickinson. Right. That sounds about right. So when I look at Isaiah McKenzie's career, here's what I see. And everyone goes, oh, well, we could just replace him. Last year, Isaiah McKenzie led the NFL. So last season, it was Monday Night Football, and I see the statistics scroll across the bottom that Isaiah McKenzie has gone more than 90% of his snaps, which is first in the NFL for any wide receiver, in motion. It underscores the fact that Isaiah McKenzie has a very specific role in this offense. They're using him to help Josh Allen identify keys as the defensive players move according to where Isaiah McKenzie goes. And he's not just a decoy, because like we saw in that San Francisco game, they kept moving him, kept moving him, kept moving him. And then the one play where they don't follow Isaiah McKenzie, he's wide open for a 24-yard touchdown pass. I mean, it's a layup of a touchdown. So with that in mind, he has a very specific role that I don't think a rookie could master coming in here in a, sing, in a single offseason, especially a rookie drafted where Marquez Stevenson is. And given what his skill set is and his inadequ- where his inadequacies lie. And then you talk about the special teams game, and everyone goes, well, at least he'd be a better punt returner or kick returner. I look at Isaiah McKenzie's rookie year. He had 50 kick return yards, 50, on three attempts. On punt returns, he had 21 returns for 183 yards. Yards per return was 8.71. Nothing to write home about, just average. In 2018, he got two kick returns. What was it? Uh, No, no, 12 kick returns. The number went up. Here in Buffalo, we were like, wait, we bring you in. We're going to use you wherever we can. He leaves Denver. He comes here. 12 kick returns. 
237. 19.75 yards per kick return. And punt return, it came down because our blocking was bad and our special teams were bad. And pretty much everything about 2018 was bad. 6.25. So then when you look at his game logs from 2019 and 2020, that's where you start to see this kind of ascendance of like, hey, when we trust him with this, kick returns. He took three for 65 yards, but his average was 21.67. And then last year, when you needed him to be your punt returner, Punt return. <laughs> Chris, how'd that work out week 17? Yeah, it was great. He scored a touchdown against backups. Okay. But he proved that he still has chops. He can still do it. And then he's improved year over year over year. So when people, when I see this stuff about Marquez Stevenson, oh, he's going to push for this, he's going to push for that. He has a mountain to climb in terms of just understanding an NFL playbook, understanding an NFL defense, being good enough at route running to be used as a decoy who can be relied on when they don't cover you, that they can throw you the ball and you can make a big play. There's no way in hell he unseats Isaiah McKenzie. Not a chance that that happens. I'll drink a Seagram's on it. And I think you're going to see that as minicamp and then training camp and all this other stuff bears out. But that's why I think it's... So what is the projection for this guy? Is it practice squad? Or is it, hey, they add him and they maybe give him... Maybe maybe they make him one of the last receivers on the roster. But I have a hard time seeing that because I feel like Isaiah Hodgins has way more upside in the fact that he's just a bigger, more capable downfield receiver. Yeah, I think it'll be practice squad. It has to be, right? Yeah. Let's establish that now, ladies and gentlemen. If if Marquez Stevenson is on the practice squad this year and he has to take a redshirt year and learn how to play the game of football, it's not a failure. That should be your baseline expectation given who he's going up against. Like we talked about the defensive ends. There's too much talent in front of you who has experience doing the things you do. You wouldn't trade an Isaiah Hodgins for a Marquez Stevenson, would you? No. No. You wouldn't trade a Duke Williams for a Marquez Stevenson. Maybe. Maybe. But you probably wouldn't because he's spent years in front of the coaching staff, and this guy just got here. And Correct. he's a rookie. Guys, let's be reasonable about these things. From a man who spends most of his life being unreasonable, let's be reasonable about a few things. <sighs> these guys are all projects, and their upside might be the most tantalizing of any class in its totality that the Bills have ever drafted. I'm excited to see how this plays out over the course of the summer. And I can't wait to revisit this with one of the smart people at the end of training camp and go back and look at the things I said today and see how they unfolded. And if things, in terms of the pecking order, in terms of where these guys slot in has changed dramatically from where I forecast them. Chris, what are the odds I'll be wrong? 100%. I don't think so. I feel pretty damn good about it. What about you guys? Is there anything here you would you argue with, or you push back on, or that you have a different idea? Email us, rockpilereport716 at gmail.com, or tweet at us at rockpilereport. Let us hear it. Minicamp just got underway. It's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out. Later this week, we're going to be talking to winner of the stake bet, Greg Thompson, as we try to recap Minicamp. We're also going to have shows coming up with Kyle Trimble from bangedupbills.com. We've got a lot of content on the way, so make sure you stay tuned each and every week. But for tonight, we got to get the hell out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. 
And this has been your Rock Bell Report.